Well, good morning. Good to be with you all again in the Lord's house, studying the Lord's word and ways. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing a series on uh, the prayer meeting and specifically a the place of women in the prayer meeting in reference to a motion that we passed. The first week we looked at the congregation and defining what we mean by what a congregation is. Last week we uh, looked at prayer and defined some of the characteristics and circumstances of prayer. This week we're going to look at a topic that is a, a rather large topic that we're going to have to do some serious work to get into and to understand. I originally thought that this third lesson would be the final lesson on this series, but as I was developing this, the plan for today, I realized that we, we have to take time with this because this is really the foundation of a lot of what the session is trying to accomplish, but also the foundation for a lot, uh, in fact, everything, about how the Lord has ordered His creation. So what we're going to be looking at today is the created order. And I have two goals. I simply want to define what the created order is. Simply defining that idea. And then, from looking at the Scriptures hopefully we can establish that there is indeed a created order. So we want to define the created order, and we want to establish what the created order is. In order to introduce our topic and uh, open us up in prayer, I want us to look at Job 38, verses 1 through 7. Job 38, verses 1 through 7. And... It's one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture, Job 38 and 39. Uh, This is where the Lord begins to speak directly to Job, and He develops His rebuke of Job. We won't read the whole, all two chapters, though it's well worth your time this afternoon. The point that the Lord makes in His rebuke of Job is that you have no right to speak against what I do, because you can't even explain the order of nature. You can't even explain to me why the ostrich or the horse or the hawk or the stars or the moon, snow, wind, rain, you don't understand any of those things. How can you possibly understand my providence? But the Lord opens up with this. Job 38 verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, O Lord, that you are the creator of heaven and earth. And that in wisdom you have laid the foundations of the earth and established them upon righteousness and justice. We bow before you, O Lord, as the almighty and all-wise creator. 
asking you now to bless us during this time as we seek to understand your created order and how we are to live in accordance with it. And we pray all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to begin with uh, a little bit of an introduction. And one of the first things we have to realize is in approaching this topic of the created order, we have an assumption in our society that we are all burdened with. This assumption has permeated all of Western culture at this point. It used to not always be the assumption of Western culture, but it has permeated all of Western culture at this point. The assumption that I'm speaking about is called individualism. Individualism is a doctrine that teaches us, men, that each person is an atomized, discrete entity sufficient unto themselves to define themselves, and in reference to themselves, all morality is understood. Let me explain it like this. Individualism teaches men that each one of you are unique and distinct snowflakes, as it were. You know, they say no snowflake is alike. Every snowflake is unique and different. This idea is embedded in Western thought and life. That we are all simply these separate individuals. I can define myself. I can direct my own life. Nobody defines me except me. And all morality is based upon my perception of it. At a high philosophical level, this is influenced. But also at a very mundane, um, childlike, cultural level. What is the message of almost every Disney movie? Follow your heart. heart. That's individualism. That's the idea that I'm talking about. So this idea is permeated. I call this a doctrine because it was one of the philosophical doctrines of the French Revolution. The French Revolution brought this idea philosophically into the Western world. The ideas of the French Revolution were spread by Napoleon when he conquered Western Europe. And those ideas took root, and gave birth to Karl Marx. Gave birth to socialism. Gave birth to all the revolutionary ideas that the Western world is plagued with. By the way, our country is no exception to this. Just a little bit off script, but just to help you understand the importance of this and how our country is dealing with this too. Who knows when the war between the states happened? It's not a trick. What were the dates of the war between the states? Anybody? 61 to 65. 1861 to 65. In Europe, less than 20 years prior to that was a, was a rash of what we call the 1848 revolutions. All throughout Western Europe, there were socialist revolutionaries that rose up and tried to take over the Western European kingdoms. They failed in 1848. Guess where they went? They came to the United States in the 1840s and the 1850s. Lincoln's army was infested with a lot of these 1848 socialist revolutionary ideas, particularly from Germany. Our country has had these ideas for quite a long time. 
So that's just a little history to help you understand where we are. Herman Bovink, in his Reformed Ethics, I highly recommend that book, does a good job explaining this phenomenon. Individualism is the anthropological, I already talked about Marxism. Part of the, the logic of Marxism is, if all of us are individuals, we are all equal. Right? If we're all separate individuals, we're all equal. If we're all equal, then nobody should be better than me when it comes to wealth. If somebody is better than me when it comes to wealth, there's oppression or exploitation going on. You see how Marx moves down the line. Well, this bleeds into all the other revolutionary ideas today. If an immigrant is essentially the same as a native, why should the national culture, mores, religion, or any other defining feature of particular nations be dominant? If people are essentially the same, why can't a biological man identify as a woman? We're all individuals. We're all the same. If men and women are essentially the same, why can't women preach, teach, and lead in the church? This is all individualism. This all comes from this idea. The Christian view is contrary to individualism, not individuals. Paul said, not I, but Christ. There's a recognition there of the individual for whom Christ died. But the recognition of an individual is different than the philosophical idea of individualism. You see the distinction. Christianity is against this doctrine. Or should we say creation is against this doctrine. Or better yet, creation and providence are against the doctrine of individualism. Well, if we go even further and really come to the bottom of the matter, recognizing that creation and providence are the way God executes His decrees, Westminster Catechism 8, I believe it is, Shorter Catechism 8, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. We can say that God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are opposed to the doctrine of individualism. More could be said about this, more should be said, but what we're interested in this morning is not understanding the errors of the wicked, but understanding the truth of God. Opposed to the error is the truth which God has revealed in nature and scripture, the created order. The error is individualism. What God has revealed in nature and scripture is what we call the created order. It's in direct opposition to this idea. As I said, we want to define and establish that this is actually a thing. One final comment is in order. We are focused only on the created order as it relates to the public order of the church. The topic of the created order is one that can range over the entire cosmos. For the order of creation is embedded in creation and encompasses all of creation. I mean, this, this idea that we're going to talk about is as broad as the created universe is. 
Because the order of creation has to do with not only the movement of atoms and the stars and how bugs develop and how plants grow and how animals breed, but it also has to do with how human, uh, uh, human society is structured and ordered. All of that is part of the created order. We're only focused on that part of the created order that governs human relationships and how they are expressed in the life of the church. Any questions at this point? Hope your coffee cup is filled because we're about to take a dive. So what is the created order? We're going to use the same framework that we've used in the other lessons. And we're going to use the the four causes to help us uh, material... We're going to use the same sort of uh, rubric, this fourfold causation, to help us understand what we're talking about. Now, to bring those up to speed who, who were not here for the previous lessons. Oh, that's lovely. Um, could, I, could you give me some paper towels? The coffee has um, become disorderly. <laughs> Out of my cup. What, what this is, is this is an idea. It's known as the four causes. This idea that comes from Aristotle. It was picked up. Thank you, sir. Um, it was picked up. I can. You, no, I got it. Good. Let me. Uh, comes from Aristotle. Was picked up by the Reformed Scholastics in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. These causes are things that we try to identify to help define something. So the classic example is a statue. If you have a statue, what causes the statue to exist? Well, first you have the material, that's marble. Then you have the form, that's the plan or the idea of a statue that the sculptor uses. Then you have the efficient, this actually brings it into existence, that would be the the craftsman doing his work. And then the final cause would be the purpose of this thing. Why is he doing this? Maybe it's for a king, maybe it's for a temple. Whatever his purpose is in doing it. That's how we use these things. So. Oh, it's leaking? Yeah. Ah. Okay. Yeah, so. Well, thank you for telling me that. So, what is the created order? First, the material... Hey, Benny. Yes, ma'am. Oh, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Drop on your seat. Thank you. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, the substance of the created order that we are focused on right now is mankind... As a whole, this is, this is very contrary to the way we think today, isn't it? When we think of humans, we say it in the plural, don't we? 
But the way the scriptures speak about humanity and mankind is in the singular as an as a entire organism. Uh, we look to Genesis 1 verse 27. Genesis 1 verse 27. There's a lot of scripture in this. And if you'd like, I can make these notes available if you want to look up these scriptures. We won't be able to look at all of them this morning. But just establishing this idea. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So notice that the scriptures begin with the idea of man, as in mankind, as one thing made in the image of God. And then it moves to talk about the distinction between male and female. So mankind in the image of God is what we are dealing with. Then the form of the created order. See, all we have right now is mankind. But without this form, it's still just the mass of humanity. The form of the created order is what I'm going to call the hierarchy of the fifth commandment. Now, who remembers the fifth commandment? Do you remember it? I'm looking at you. Um, honor your father and mother so that you may be along upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Very good. First Very good. As the, as the Westminster Catechism expounds this commandment and, and unfolds what it means, they note that the fifth commandment has to do with our relations as superiors, inferiors, and equals. This is what I mean by the hierarchy of the fifth commandment. Within human society, there is a hierarchy. And the fifth commandment gives good expression to this by starting out with the primary relationship that we all enter into. When all of us entered creation, except for Adam, we all entered creation as an inferior. We all entered the world as children. And so we all entered with this very basic idea of being subordinate to a superior. That's our first experience of human life. Ephesians 5, 15 through 6, 9, Paul begins to expound Christian duties one to another. If you pay careful attention to that passage, you'll see that he deals with equals, superiors, and inferiors throughout that whole passage. He's using this idea to admonish the church and direct them. Uh, one of the things that we note about the fifth commandment is that it begins with the family. That's why the commandment is written that way. Honor your father and mother. Scripturally, that's what Exodus 12, uh, 20 verse 12 says. Uh, Romans 1, 28 through 32 is a negative example. Turn to Romans 1, 28 through 32.
I say this is a negative example, what Paul is dealing with here is the judgment of God upon a wicked society, a society that has forgotten God. One of the judgments that God imposes upon a wicked society is to allow them to go further in their wickedness. He gives them over, as Paul says, to a debased mind. Part of a debased mind is violating the created order. And that's what Paul's going to describe here. Verse 28, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, which are not proper, which are not orderly, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Interesting. Paul puts disobedience to parents on the same level as sexual immorality. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but give approval to those who practice them. Just notice it's a negative example. That's all I'm trying to highlight about the family origins of this. Um, Not only do we have scriptural reason to, to understand this hierarchy, There's also a very helpful, natural reason why it's this way. As I mentioned already, everybody has a mom and a dad. Except Adam. And Eve, technically. But all of us in this room have a mom and a dad. All of us entered the world as an inferior. And as we grow and develop, God may indeed put us into a position of being superiors. In each family also is where we learn, for good or for ill, how to relate to people as superiors, inferiors, and equals. We all learn how to relate to authority in the family. That's where we pick it up. And that goes with us for the rest of our lives. Thus, in our experience, our first realization of ourselves is in the context of the hierarchy as expressed in the family. Let me just make a comment at this point. I know that in our day, a lot of politicians will highlight part of their talking platform will be things like faith, freedom, and family. That makes for a good campaign poster, right? Because they know that it stirs up people like us, like, yeah, they are attacking the family. They shouldn't do that. Yeah, vote Republican. They are right that the family is under attack, but in most instances, they don't understand the depth of the wickedness of that. It's not just that marriages are broken up. It's also that the family as an institution of God's created order is where citizens and saints are formed. The reason today you don't, we don't have a lot of good citizens, and in many cases not a lot of good saints, is because the family didn't do its job. That's why the family must be protected. It's the nursery of the church and of the state. Well, moving on. That's the form of the created order. We've got the raw material. We have the pattern 
that this raw material is being formed into, now we need to find out what is the efficient cause. What makes this happen? What causes this? The efficient cause, or that which brings this into existence, is the providence of God. The providence of God, as uh, the larger catechism tells us, in question and answer 18, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and their actions to his own glory. It is God's providence that your father is who your father is. It is God's providence that your kids are who they are, meaning God gave you those kids and he gave you those parents. It is God's providence that you were born at the time you were born in. It is God's providence that all of these things come together, and it is His providence that brings this about. Let me maybe highlight this by way of contrast. When God created the angels, He created them all in an instant. All unique, all at the same time. Angels don't have mothers and fathers. Angels all exist as unique individual beings. God did not want to create man that way. He ordained that we should come into existence through ordinary generation. As it says in the book of Acts, from one blood He made all men upon the earth. In God's providence, we are all connected by that idea. And in His providence, He orders us to come into existence this way. This is Bavink. If you don't know who Herman Bavink is, I encourage you to Find out more about him. Uh, He's a great early 20th century theologian from the Netherlands. It is the providence of God that, interlocking with creation, maintains and brings to full development all these distinct natures, forces, and ordinances. In providence, God respects and develops, does not nullify the things he called into being in creation. It does not pertain to divine providence to corrupt the nature of things, but to preserve that nature. This is so critical. I'm going to read this again. Bavink is quoting a man named Thomas Aquinas. It does not pertain to divine providence to corrupt the nature of things, but to preserve that nature. Thus, therefore, God preserves and governs all creatures according to their nature. Angels in one way, humans in another. And that uh, latter again in a way that differs from plants and animals. Let me put it to you this way, to simplify that very heady statement. You are a human being made in the image of God. God's providence relates to you and governs you as a human being made in the image of God. He does not relate to you as an angel. He does not relate to you as a dog. He does not relate to you as a tree. He relates to you as a human being made in the image of God. Now we can go one step further. 
if you are a wife, God's providence relates to you as a human wife. If you're a father, God's providence relates to you as a human father. If you're a son, if you're a daughter, if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're not, you, you see how it works. That's what Bavink is saying. He preserves the nature of the things he created in his providence. So, we now have the final cause. Why? What's God's purpose in doing this? His purpose in doing this is... final cause for the created order, the reason God does it this way, is for His own glory in executing His decree. The final cause, the purpose for the created order, is God's own glory in the execution of His decree. Let me read again the Westminster Catechism. This is uh, question and answer 12 and 14. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of His will, whereby from all eternity He hath for His own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. That's the decree. 14. How doth God execute His decree? God executeth His decrees in the works of creation and providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will. In other words, what God is doing by creating the world and providentially governing the world is executing His eternal decree for His own glory. That is the final cause of the created order. That's why the created order exists. So at this point, I know where um, the fire hose is wide open. Are there any questions at this point before we move on? What we're trying to do here again is define what we mean by the created order as it relates to human society. Any questions at this point? If not, we can move on to the next part. Very good. Um, So now we have to ask the question. Is there a created order? We've got a definition in place. And this is a fine definition for the head of a pastor who reads too much. But is this really a thing? Does it actually exist in the world? Well, we're going to try and prove that, but we have to just remember something about our method. Oftentimes, we come to wrong conclusions about God and His ways... Because we either ask the wrong question 
or we seek to answer the question in the wrong way. We either ask the wrong question or we seek to answer the question in the wrong way. You guys have heard, I think, the funny anecdote about the man who wanted to know God's will for his life. And so he opened the Bible to a random passage and it said Judas hanged himself. He's like, no, that can't be right. He closed it, prayed, and opened it again and it's where Christ says, what you do, do quickly. (laughs) He's going to the Bible, but he's approaching it with the wrong method. Thankfully, he didn't follow his method, I think. The method that we have to keep in mind here Scripture's primary message is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Scriptures are given to us to to declare. In doing this, Scripture will sometimes repeat or assume the created order. Scripture does not often spend a lot of time explaining things that we learn from nature. This is one of the things that we learn from nature because we're all born into a family. Our first human experiences are an experience of the created order. Scripture does not often spend a lot of time explaining those things. For instance, Scripture does not try to prove the existence of God. Not in the philosophical sense that we're used to. It just assumes it from the word go. In the beginning, God. And then the story moves on. Likewise with this, Scripture assumes the created order, but it will apply the created order in the writings of the apostles and the prophets. Often what you're going to find in Scripture, and some of the examples we'll look at, is that the prophet or the apostle has this assumption in the back of his mind because it's a part of the light of nature. And in ordering the church or ordering the family or ordering the society as a servant of God, they apply the created order to the relations within those spheres. Okay? So some of the passages that we're going to look at Follow this kind of method. Method. It's an application of the created order that exists sort of underneath Scripture, supporting Scripture in a logical sense. So, one of the first things that we recognize from Scripture is male headship as the basis of human societal hierarchy or... The created order among men. The one example that I'll use for this, well, I'll try and move rather rapidly through this, uh, and hopefully we can prove this. Male headship as the basis of human society. Look in Genesis 2, verse 23. Genesis 2, verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Adam has just been engaged in naming all of the creatures, an exercise of authority over the creation. He has not found a helper that's fit for him. God then creates the woman, brings the woman to man in the same way that he brought all the animals in front of man. He brings woman and Adam sees her and says, she's the one. She is like me and we are of the same uh, uh, flesh and of the same bone. And then he gives her a name. He names her woman. Giving names is an exercise of authority. Adam exercises authority over the woman by naming her. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 20. That was before the fall. This is now after the fall. And look what happens. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Again, Adam is exercising authority by naming his wife. Now, I'm going to go off script here because I want to really encourage your hearts on this verse in particular. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Old Testament because this verse is a testimony to Adam's saving faith. Remember that at this point, the gospel that was preached to Adam was simply... The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's all they have. And so as far as Adam knows, whatever salvation is going to be, it at least means through the woman, an offspring is going to come who defeats the serpent. Now think about the position Adam is in. The woman is the one that tempted him. The woman is the one that gave him the fruit. The woman is the one he was blaming five minutes ago. But by the power of the gospel and Adam's faith in the promise, he's able to look at the promise and look at his wife and say, no, she is Eve, the mother of all living. You see how the gospel restores this? The gospel reestablishes the order of creation. Many people misunderstand this passage and all the stuff surrounding Genesis 2 and 3. We don't have time to go into it, but hopefully that whets your appetite for more. So we see it at the absolute beginning. We also see it in the civil sphere. In the sphere of civil society, male headship is the norm. Isaiah 3.12, Isaiah says that, Oh, my people, children and women lead them. Those that lead you, lead you astray. Exodus 18.21, Jethro is giving directions to Moses about how to govern the country. And he says, Find able men who fear God and hate covetousness, and appoint them over this business. In the family, as well, male headship is the norm of created order. Numbers chapter 30 is a passage you could look at on your own. I won't spend a lot of time on that one, just because there's not a lot of time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 36 through 38. Turn, to, turn with me to that one. That, that's an important one that's often misunderstood. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 36 through 38. This passage establishes the father's authority over his daughter when it comes to marriage. But if a man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin and she is past the flower of youth, thus it must be, let them do what he wishes. Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Skip down to verse 38. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does 
better. Notice the emphasis here is on the one who has power to give away in marriage. Notice verse 36. If a man is behaving improperly toward his virgin daughter is the assumption. What this would be, this would be a picture of a man who has a, a virgin daughter. She's, she's getting older and she's not married yet because he won't let her get married. That would be behaving improperly toward a virgin daughter. Keeping her in the home past the age of, past marriageable age um, unjustly or irrationally. So he's behaving improperly. She's past the flower of youth. Notice she's getting older. And thus it must be, notice at the end of verse 36, let them marry. He's talking to the father and saying, let her and the bow get married. Stop withholding this. This is not right for you to do this. So that's the father's authority over daughters. Um, Ephesians 5, through 23, very famous passage, the husband's authority over the wife. So what we've seen at this point, there is a created order, or at least we've defined the created order. We're seeing that created order applied in various passages. At the very beginning with Adam and Eve, in the sphere of the civil magistrate, in the sphere of the family, and now we move to the sphere of the church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. First Timothy two eleven through fifteen. Paul writes, "Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control." Notice that Paul also establishes in the church the same pattern that we've been seeing. There is a hierarchy in nature. One of the fundamental ideas of that hierarchy is that male headship is one of the principles of human society in the state, in the family, and now Paul applies it in the church. Um, other, another passage you can look at if you want to take it down in your notes is 1 Corinthians 14. 34 through 35. Now just to sum up, I know that the fire hose is wide open right now. In all of these examples, the method of the prophet or apostle is to apply the order of creation, specifically this one idea from the order of creation, male headship, to the particular situation they're dealing with. For instance, 1 Corinthians 7, with the marriage of daughters. There's a situation here, probably Pastor Paul has gotten a complaint from this adult daughter. And this adult daughter is talking to Pastor Paul saying, Pastor Paul, my daddy won't let me get married. What should I do? The way that Paul approaches and solves that situation is by taking the created order and applying it to that situation. He says, okay, slow down, sweetheart. He then goes to the father and says, look, dad, if she's getting older and she's got a good young man she wants to marry, let him get married. It's not sinful. There's no reason for you to withhold this. Likewise, in some of the other situations that we looked at, they take the order of creation and apply it to the particular situation they're dealing with. 
So, this means that one of the baseline principles of human society is male headship from the beginning in the state, the family, and the church, or in any other area which men may lawfully associate for godly ends. Um, Let me conclude by just saying this and making one observation. These ideas that I believe are scriptural, that I've tried to define and expound to you, are the kind of ideas that get people fired from their jobs. These are the kinds of ideas that get people canceled in whatever situation you find yourself in. These ideas are the ones that our culture is at war against right now. That's why it is doubly important for us to be grounded in these ideas because the truth of God will never fail. A society that ignores the order of creation is a society that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. A debased mind, not remembering God, and going off into all kinds of sin and wickedness. But the reason I'm emphasizing this is because it's helpful for us to understand what the scriptures teach and how these revolutionary ideas in our day contradict the truth of God's word. And it's also important to understand the broader goal of this series. As we come to the fourth and, Lord willing, final lesson of this series, I'm hoping to pull all of these ideas together. The congregation, the prayer, the created order, and bring all of that together to explain why our session believes the scriptures teach that a woman ought not to pray audibly in a meeting of the congregation as a congregation. All three of these ideas are involved in that. Um, So, are there any questions at this point? If not, I'll close us in prayer and I'll be available for questions afterward. As always, if you have questions as you think about this throughout the week, please email them to me. I'm going to be putting all the questions I receive into a, a little portion of the last lesson. These lessons are being recorded. They're going to be on sermon audio. So you'll be available to go back and review this. Very good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we give you thanks for uh, the fulfillment of your word and the works of creation and providence. We ask you, O Lord, to help us to understand your ways and in understanding your ways to walk in them that we indeed might be saved and be a blessing to those around us. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.